Well, preparing this, uh, this sermon, I can't get the, uh, the Beatles song out of my head, Love is All We Need. I kind of made allusion to that in the sermon title there in your, your bulletin, didn't quote it word for word, but uh, something to the effect of God's love is what we need. You know, we are venturing into this study of the book of First uh, Timothy here, and it is ground that is um, not tread lightly. It's ground that I think is important ground for the church, but one uh, that is full of pitfalls and quicksand, full of uh, difficulty. We read the whole letter last week, and you saw some of those. And then in the community group uh, that started this past week, uh, there was opportunity to discuss some of the questions, and it's not just questions about uh, men and women and roles in the church and, and thing, various things in the church in chapter 2, but it's questions like what does it mean uh, that uh, uh, all shall be saved? We'll get into those step by step, and we're not getting ahead of ourselves to get into that, and I think it's very significant that Paul himself doesn't get ahead of himself in introducing the letter to Timothy. He doesn't assume that Timothy knows certain things and so he can just bypass over those things that were maybe the first things or the most important things. But Paul revisits those most important things. You may ask the question, why even address uh, this, this letter at all? Why not just leave it to the side and some of the answers that we've started to look at and, and, and talked about last week are, uh, for one thing, the letter to Timothy tells us a lot about how to organize the church that Paul calls the household of God. How do you organize the household of God? What are the expected responsibilities of people in that household? What are the needed roles and responsibilities, leadership especially, but not just leadership. In fact, only one chapter is really devoted to uh, the, 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 who is called to be elders and deacons. Another chapter talks about who is uh, called in particular to be teachers, but it's only a portion of the chapter. Much more of the book is about the whole family of God, and we talked about how it's not just addressed to Timothy as an elder in the church and even the apprentice of an apostle who has apostolic kind of roles himself in, in establishing this church and planting this church in Ephesus and guiding it. But it's written to the whole household of God. And the last line itself says, grace to you and uses a plural you as if to anticipate that this letter was going to be read publicly to many people and not just leaders. And it has instructions to many people and not just leaders in the church. Second reason we study this church, other than church order and the household of God, has to do with kind of what we've used to say in our house. You know, it's kind of a question of who gets to say. But church order is more than just who gets the say. It's important to know who gets to say, who is under authority and who has authority in certain places. All of life deals with authority. We were just talking about in the, uh, the parenting class this morning about uh, the importance of us knowing how to say no in certain circumstances and also 
the importance of us knowing how to hear no in other circumstances. One of the most profound statements that Jesus makes in the Gospels as recorded is when a centurion, you remember this Roman soldier in charge of a hundred soldiers, comes to Jesus and asks for help. And the centurion says, you don't even need to come to my home to help me, Jesus. You just say the word and, and you got it. And Jesus kind of questions him and he says, he says, look, I know how authority works. I am one who's under authority and I have people who are under my authority. And Jesus marvels at this man's answer and says, this is true faith that's demonstrated. Understanding that authority has been given, but it's also expected. And all of us are under authority and some of us have, all of us have given certain things to be in authority over. So who gets to say is an important question in any household. Sometimes we don't even talk about it. Oftentimes it goes unspoken, but it still is there whether we say it or not. Sometimes I laugh because people talk about uh, liturgy in the church and how some churches are liturgical or some churches aren't. Liturgy just refers to the fact that there's some kind of sequence of things you do in the church. So every church has liturgy. It's just a question of whether you call it that or not. Whether you acknowledge that you have it or not, what you do is a different question. What you do in the liturgy, but every church has liturgy. Every household has authority structures, whether they're discussed or not. Paul's telling Timothy, you you have to talk about these things. A household is not effective if you don't talk about these things. If you just say all we need is love and you don't talk about what love means, how love means is displayed what good love is, then you're not talking about the same thing. As each of us defines love differently, and love is really at the heart of what the opening of this chat, this book is to Timothy. What is love? A third reason to study this book is that it seems like a book that we can just avoid and set aside. And, and if we do it, we'll avoid unnecessary controversy. And as I've looked around, most churches do this. Most per- churches just don't even touch this with a 10-foot pole. They kind of allude to it in certain topical sermons, and they'll reference it, but they don't actually teach through it. But a couple of things happen if you do that. One is that it unintentionally undermines Scripture's authority in our lives. If we take a book of the Bible and we say, well, we don't really understand that, so we're just going to set that aside and not deal with that right now, it gradually over time just eats away at our confidence that God is actually speaking to us meaningfully in his word. We start to think, well, maybe some things are less authoritative than others in the scripture. Maybe some things were just heirs in the scriptures. Paul tells Timothy, we read in 2 Timothy when we look through it, that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. Useful for the Christian. All Scripture. You say, well, he was talking about the Old Testament. But Peter, in writing his letter, 2 Peter, says, look, pay attention to the Scripture that the Apostle Paul is writing. Using that language, the Scripture that the Apostle Paul is writing. Some of the things that he's writing are difficult to understand, but they're necessary. 
Already they're acknowledging that there's scripture being written in New Testament times. Old Testament, New Testament. We can't ignore it or we unintentionally undermine scripture's authority in our lives. And of course, the second thing, if we just set it aside and don't address the controversy, is it's just like sweeping the problem under the rug. Eventually it's going to come out. Eventually you're going to pull up the rug and you're going to realize that that spill that you had soaked through the rug and it's sticking to the hardwood now and destroyed the rug. Destroy the floor and, and the rug. So we can't just gloss over these things, but we can't take them lightly. We shouldn't take them uh, just at, uh, at just a, a moment's notice. We need to study them with care and concern. Now, now the first thing that I think is, is important to understand these letters is that they're, they're, they're written in context. And the context, the context is this that you have new churches that are less than 15 years old in these places, maybe, maybe 10 to 20 years old in these places. These churches consist of both Jewish converts or Jewish believers. I wouldn't even call them converts because they're just, they're just believing the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. Christianity is not something that needs to be converted to from Judaism so much as something that needs to be understood out of the Jewish faith in the Old Testament scriptures because Christ is the Messiah that's, that's hoped for. So they consist of both Jewish believers and probably predominantly Gentile believers. Paul is an apostle and he gets approval from the other apostles, Jesus' disciples, to go and particularly minister to the Gentiles. Even though Paul was a Pharisee, a Jewish religious zealot in many ways, he has this heart to go and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles because the gospel is for all nations. And the Jews were entrusted with this word of God, with the very presence of God, with the prophets who came to speak of God, always with this intent that the faith that God was showing them and the relationship and the household that God was building with them was something that was for the whole world. Not to be hoarded, but something to be shared. So Paul is a minister to the Gentiles, taking this good news to the Gentiles. And these churches are young, and they're trying to figure out how to operate. And in many cases, there haven't even been elders appointed to the church to oversee it. More than just one person, the, the, the notion of the bishop emerges fairly early in church history, but you see in this letter that there's a plurality of elders, a shared responsibility, a collaborating of these things, but there's a, a need for these elders to be mature in their faith, in their love, in their life, in their knowledge, in their doctrine. By the way, doctrine is kind of a religious sounding word that we don't really tune our ears into now, but it simply means teaching. The word, in fact, is just the word teaching. A different teaching, a different gospel is what Paul's saying, is that it's different than what actually happened. The real Jesus that came and lived and died and was raised from the dead and brought this love to humanity. And they're teaching something different than this Jesus. And Paul begins this letter very significantly with this instruction 
that Timothy should go and warn these other people, more than warn, but charge these other people, demand these other people, command these other people, these false teachers, to stop teaching falsely. That's significant. It's also somewhat significant that we don't even know exactly what they were teaching. We get some hints at it, genealogies, myths, making confident assertions. We have the hint that they're focusing in on the law in some way that is not right, but we don't even hear specifically what they're teaching. Now, Timothy knew exactly what they were teaching. But it's not even so significant to us what they were teaching. A lot of people have speculated on this. Were they teaching sort of a Gnostic understanding that spirituality is something that we need to be removed from from the the physical bounds of life, the, the, the physical constraints of life that stems more from Plato than anything you find in the Old Testament or New Testament of the Bible? Other people were saying, and I think this is probably accurate, more accurate, that um, people were paying a lot of attention to stories that were being told among the Jewish community that elaborated on the story that's told in the Old Testament. And this was a common form of history and also teaching uh, and, and among writers in, uh, in the, the Jewish time, Jesus' Jesus's time was sometimes called as the Second Temple Judaism when the temple was rebuilt, but there wasn't a king in Israel. And especially as you get t- close to the time of Christ, people are writing these histories of the Jewish people, and there are a number of famous ones, and they retell the story of the Bible. If you read through these, you're reading, you say, well, I know that story, but then they sort of elaborate on the story. And some of these elaborations come from probably oral traditions passed down through the years. Some of them maybe are just embellishments to make the story more interesting. Some of them are explanations of what the story means, various things. But oftentimes they follow this whole flow of history and they tended to include genealogies, even more genealogies that are in the Old Testament, you say even more, wow, that's a significant. But yes, even more genealogies in the Old Testament. They, they tend to add names to things that names weren't in there. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, we read that uh, Paul is, is writing to, to, to Timothy. He says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. And Janus and Jambres are by tradition, not, not by the Old Testament, supposedly the magicians who were in Pharaoh's court. And, um, and the names of these magicians who were turning the snakes, the, uh, the, their staffs into snakes and doing different uh, different things. So Paul even picks up on some of these traditions, and it's probably likely that this is what he's referring to when he says, uh, when he says they were devoting themselves to myths and also genealogies. But again, that's not the most significant thing. What Paul wants us to pay attention to, what Paul wants Timothy in the church then, what Paul wants us to pay attention to, is that in God's gospel, 
in the good news of Jesus Christ, in the most significant part of teaching, you find at the heart of this a true love that defines what love is. Love is not to be defined by everyone. Love is defined by Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 13. Familiar passage. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Love should define what we are as a household of God. Love is what we've been given to steward, to care for. Not the telling of certain myths and stories and promotion of speculation and even sitting around and chatting about theology. If we have all these things and have not love, Paul would say, we've missed the whole point of the Christian faith. We've missed the whole point of why Christ came. We've missed the whole point of why God even made humanity. At the heart of human existence is the human need to love and to be loved. Both by God and other human beings. Oftentimes, love is pitted against the law. Paul explains in multiple places, including here, that the law is simply an explanation of how we should love. Jesus himself, in that passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, explains that the law goes far deeper than simply not murdering, not committing adultery, not lying. The law 
uncovers our heart's motives and reveals our greatest weaknesses and needs, our greatest struggles and temptations. And in fact, the law comes into our life and when we see that that demonstration of what true love is that Jesus gives us, all of us realize that we're on the side of lawbreakers and not on the side of law keepers. In fact, any of us who have truly tried to love another person have experienced the difficulty of that relationship and of what love truly is. Love is not easy. It does not seek what we want first, but seeks to satisfy the needs of others first. Love sometimes looks at others and says, you want something that's not, giving, not going to give you what you expect it to give. Love is willing to enter into the messiness of life and get our hands dirty. To wash another person's feet. To endure with them while they suffer the pain or loss or even their own physical illness leading to death at times. To give up our own goals and ambitions. To stop on the road to Jerusalem with the hope of worshiping in a great experience in order to help somebody who's hurt and fallen on the road and have to spend the night in a place that is unsafe and unwelcoming so that we can care for that person. Love, C.S. Lewis said, can be found in three ways in the Bible. Agape, love. Filio, love. Eros, love. Somewhat of an oversimplification, but you can say that filio is sort of a brotherly, camaraderie love. Eros is more of a romantic love. Agape is more of a godly love or a charity he uses to describe it. I think there's a lot of overlap between agape and filio and agape and eros, of course, and even some overlap between filio and eros that we should explore and understand more because one of the plagues of our society today is an inability to enter into intimate relationships with others. Not just with a spouse, but with friends, with children, with biological brothers and sisters, with parents, with co-workers. We long for this intimacy, but we can't quite find it. And when we try to give a little bit of ourselves, oftentimes we find ourselves hurt and confused, not sure what to make of it, and less willing to enter into that again in the future. An absence of love kills the human spirit and desire for the rest of life, the zeal for life. And I see this in the church, not necessarily in our church, although I think some of us have lost that zeal for life. We've just sort of calmed our desires and squelched any kind of fervor for faith or life in general because we've been disappointed with love and our experiences in life. Do you know what that is? Sometimes we think of 
agape love, charity, godly love as this completely self-sacrificing thing, but we fail to realize that and acknowledge that we need to receive love back or else we wither and dry up. We can't. We are not made to just give all the time and never receive anything in return. Jesus could do that. Jesus did that, but I think Jesus even eventually gets that love in return as He sees His disciples blossom and mature and come to a place where they are able to be elders in the church. But we're not Jesus. And we need to receive that love and we need to give that love. How we express that, how we find that is, is a, a deep theological and practical question that we can just scratch the surface of today. Paul addresses in chapter 5, verse 5, excuse me, sort of the, something of the source of that love. The aim of our charge, he says, is love that issues from, that comes out of, that springs up from three things. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Biblical scholar William Mounts wrote, love, kind of paraphrases, love comes from a heart cleansed of sin, a conscience clear of guilt, and a faith devoid of hypocrisy. I want to spend just a little bit of time unpacking these three things. I think Mounts comes close to that, but any paraphrase, brief paraphrase, oftentimes can't really flesh this out entirely. The first one, a pure heart. The language really harkens back to an Old Testament picture of cleanliness. Sacrificial cleanliness, a cleansing of the person from their sin. A clean heart is probably a more helpful translation, although a pure heart is is good. A heart that's cleansed by something that's outside of us. A clean heart or a pure heart isn't just having good desires. A clean heart in this context means that our heart has been cleansed from the sin that lives within us. And again, again, we can connect with this with the whole of chapter 1 and see how Paul identifies himself as the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners, and, and required his own heart to be cleansed. And we should do the same thing. That that clean heart only comes from God's cleansing it external to us. And it only comes, of course, with the good news of the gospel. That is, Jesus' love poured out for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The second thing he says is a good conscience. A conscience is a more familiar word, and it's a consistent word with what we use in the English language. It's, a, it's our sense of a moral compass in life. Having a sense of right and wrong. Chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says, Deacons, deacons must hold to the mystery of the faith with a good conscience. 
the compass pointing in the right direction. Good is also a good translation, a helpful translation. That means that it is right and not wrong. Not convincing ourselves that certain things are right when they are wrong is so tempting. So tempting to call things right that we know are wrong. And if, if we don't have something external to us making us righteous, really there's no option philosophically There's no option philosophically but to reduce our moral standards and call what is wrong right and still be able to live consistently. Right? If if there's nothing outside of us that's saying you are good and loved, then we have to reduce our moral standards to the point where we can live up to them so that we can say that we love ourselves because we followed all those commandments, right? This is, this is the language that's used in common, uh, common philosophy all the way from the baseball fields at Little League to, the, to, to Oprah's advice. That we have to be able to love ourselves. And how can we love ourselves unless we measure up to our own standards? It's impossible to do that. But a good conscience is one of the most important things from, from out of which can come true love. A good conscience in biblical sense is understanding that God's law is our moral compass and is always going to hold us to a higher standard than we can attain. It's always going to serve as something of a stretch goal. Familiar with that term? Those goals that you set that you know you're not going to get to, but if you don't set them high, you're not going to get to where you need to be. And it's good to have those stretch goals. It's good to not reduce our understanding of right and wrong to be something that we can just live up to. Because our love will not pass the test. It won't measure up. The third thing here is a sincere faith. The word for sincere really means without hypocrisy. It is genuine. Faith sometimes seems like an extraneous thing, right? If we have a cleansed heart and a good moral compass, why do we need faith? Is it? But but it's interesting that every time, but one, and it's multiple times in the pastoral epistles, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, that that Paul mentions love. Every time but one, he pairs it with faith. And it's tempting to say, well, yeah, we need to believe in order to be able to love. And, and it's, it's pop culture to say, yeah, this, this faith thing, we've got to have faith in something. And even the 12-step program for uh, recovering uh, people who've struggled with addictions in the past say so you have to believe in something. But Paul's talking, of course, about a particular faith, and that is faith in the one Jesus Christ and the salvation that God has brought. It's also significant that Paul himself was a hypocrite. Who does Jesus call the biggest hypocrites? It was the Pharisees. And what were the Pharisees guilty of? What were the Pharisees guilty of? They weren't just mean and keeping people away from God. 
they did that, but they didn't even realize they did that. And people didn't realize they did that. People looked to the Pharisees to help them be mediators to God in one sense, to help them draw closer to God because the Pharisees were rule keepers. They kept the rules. They followed the law. Everybody looked at them and said, wow, look at they are praying all the time. They observed the Sabbath faithfully. They're at all the religious festivals. They are teachers of the law. And Jesus said about them, they are far from God. They are empty. Their throats are like graves, like the stench that comes out of a grave. They're like whitewashed tombs. Now, why would Jesus say that about them? And the simple answer is that they didn't have faith and they didn't have love. They were looking to their own deeds to merit favor with God. They were isolating themselves from culture so that they could keep all the rules without being willing to enter into the difficult places of life where love is played out in reality and not in the imagination. One of the more difficult things in New Testament language, in the Greek language, is how to translate the word faith, pistis. Because in the Greek language, it can mean both faith and faithfulness. And if you know anything about theology, you know that there's this constant argument of are we saved by our belief or our works? And in this language, Confusion, faith, and faithfulness, it seems like those are two different things, very different things. And you read the, uh, the epistle that James, the brother of Jesus, writes, and you say, how can this be? He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. But true belief in God, true faith in God is always coupled with genuine love. Sincere faith is true love. And love always pushes us out into difficult places. And faithfulness, faith and faithfulness are really the same thing. Faithfulness is when you stay in the mess, when it would be a lot easier to get out and say, I did what I needed to do. Faith and faithfulness are engaging in the love in a way that is without hypocrisy. Pharisees were hypocrites in part because they lacked love for other people. They wanted their name to be great instead of wanting other people to come to see God and meet God. And of course, this is what Jesus does and demonstrates is he is great, but he comes and enters into the messiness of life to show what godly love really is. To love those who were unlovable. To keep our standards high and to refresh our spirits when we know we don't measure up.
Let me venture into something that we're going to get into more next week when we talk about uh, what the law is. And read ahead. You know what's coming next. It's a law. And, and what, uh, what Paul describes is essentially a summar, summarization of, or a summarizing of, uh, of the Ten Commandments. We tend, when we think about the Gospel, to focus on the problem being our personal sin. All the things that we do wrong, the ways that we haven't measured up, and oftentimes the things that come to our mind first, the things that come to our mind first when we confess our sins, what are they? Well, I didn't have my quiet time this week. I forgot to pray. I didn't tend to... I didn't tend to um, worship. I skipped church, skipped community group, skipped something like this. I lusted after someone in my heart. I wanted something that I know I shouldn't have wanted. I coveted what somebody else had. But what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount is that our bigger problem is that we don't know how to love Freely. And I'm going to intentionally use that somewhat 60s language there to hopefully awaken us to the fact that Jesus doesn't care so much about those things that I just mentioned as much as he cares about the ways that you loved and cared for other people around you this week. Were you desiring for other people around you to flourish in their life? Were you looking for opportunities to enter into difficult problems and just sit with somebody in their pain? Were you able to help somebody else out at work who was having a rough day, just an awful day? And you didn't have to do it and they didn't deserve it because they were mean to you this morning, but But when you enter in with that kind of love, it turns the tables on evil and it opens a whole other opportunity for love to exist at another level that is self-sacrificing instead of self-demanding. I said before that one of the greatest problems that we have is that our love needs to be reciprocated. We need to receive back. And there's a, there are limits to our love and there are consequences to people doing things that break relationships and break love. And one of the most loving things we can do for our kids is set some limits to them and let them see some of the consequences, but not be so removed that we lose love for them or that they sense that we love them less because of what they're doing. You know, Paul in these letters may seem harsh when he's talking about people who have left him or left the faith. And he says, don't be associated with those people. But I think one of the things that hurt Paul so much and why he can use this this somewhat raw language is because he genuinely loved these people and was willing to enter into these difficult relationships and, and probably relationships that were really satisfying for a time. And the more you love, the more you will be hurt if something goes wrong in the relationship.
Paul calls Timothy his true child in the faith. Many argue that Timothy was probably Paul's best friend. It's interesting because they're different generations. Timothy is much younger than Paul. Oftentimes, cross-generational relationships are, are, are more difficult than relationships with our peers. But we're called to enter into these relationships and given the ability to enter into them because of what's center in the hope of the gospel. And that is God poured out his love for us while we were still sinners. And that he refreshes us and keeps our standards high when we want to just give up and just exist on a certain level. Causes us to push ahead and to continue to extend that love. To understand that sometimes what people need to hear is the difficult thing to say, the most difficult thing to say. Next week, next week we talk about sex. We've got to. We've got to address this. It's listed right there, men who practice homosexuality and slavers, the sexually immoral. We can't just read over it. We've got to talk about it. But I'll tell you, it may not be the best week to invite somebody who struggles with homosexuality to the church, but I will promise you that you'll come away with an encouraged spirit that understands how much God loves us and loves people who struggle with any kind of sin. And we need to start by putting ourselves in the shoes of others who struggle with questions of identity. And I don't think this is a far stretch for any of us because we all struggle with questions of identity. And questions of identity oftentimes work themselves out in different types of sexual expressions. And I think that this is a symptom of where we are as a culture of this question of identity and lack of intimacy that so many other sexual sins, and I'm not just talking about the, question, the questions that arise with homosexuality, I'm talking about all kinds of sexual sins, are centered on this key issue of identity and the plague that we experience of a lack of intimacy in our lives. So I just want to give you a heads up about that. Uh, the following week, we'll probably talk about the, the, the difficulties in chapter two of men's and women's roles in the church, also important, also controversial. Don't not come because of those things. Enter into it, and we'll do it together. Um, let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us with a love that is um, unending that is steadfast that it endures when we don't reciprocate but always moves us out of those places of difficulty hard heartedness isolation because of the hope that's in the gospel will you strengthen us for this uh this series in First Timothy and equip us as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.